On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses tales from topographic oceans and Relayer. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined as usual by my very good friends, Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory. On this episode, we examine two of Yes's most progressive albums, Tales from Topographic Oceans and Relayer. Um, if, if we're ready to start, I did. I did have something that I wanted to uh, to start off with that just is related, unrelated, and it just made me laugh. So there was this box set that came out many years ago um, called. Oh Wonder. yeah. And it's got this this beautiful, you know, glossy book with all kinds of pretty pictures and stuff, and lots of information in here. So I was going through this, um, just seeing if there were any nuggets before we started all of this. And in the very beginning, there is a a foreword, a preface, if you were, from Cameron Crowe, who talks about um, you know a time in San Diego when he got to meet Yes, and how it it changed his life and everything else. Wow. But there was this there's this one paragraph that just floored me, absolutely floored me. And again, this was before we even started all of this. Here's one more fond memory. Writing about Pearl Jam in the heyday of the so-called grunge explosion, guitarist Stone Gossard was sitting in the back of a car moving through San Francisco. Quote, There's so much for this band to accomplish, he said, leaning forward confidentially. But what I really want is for us to make our tales from topographic oceans. I always wondered what the hell happened to Pearl Jam. Now I know. There you go. If you're aiming for tales from topographic oceans, I think you're aiming in the wrong direction, my friend. Huh. Good call. I would agree with you. Um, it's become the punching bag. Did you notice the post I put on the palaver this weekend from the Atlantic? It's pushed back on the Dave Weigel piece. Yeah, yeah. I did not get a chance to read that, though. Would well, you please illuminate us? Ken? Yeah, I wouldn't, you know, call it very long. It's, it's, a, it's a quick read. And, you know, he, he takes a, a punch at Tails in the very beginning. So, so even, even those, uh, Parker, James Parker, his name, and I guess he's a, a professed punk fan. He says punk righted the system. Punk kind of put everything back into a more primitive kind of music when, uh, the crazy white prog rockers took everything out of control and did their own thing. 
so this Parker took a stab at Tails, and knowing it by name and not being a fan of the music would indicate that it's probably a punching bag universally. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think Tails, it, it, in a lot of ways, it is the poster child for that. I mean, you've got, you know, a double album with four songs. How ridiculous is that, you know? But it was, as I was going through it, you know, in, in again, in preparation for this, I, for the most part, for the most part, my feeling is, and, and here again, it, it's similar to the conversations I think we had with Close to the Edge, in that, obviously, the songs are huge, you know, the, the, the subject matter, such as it is, is, you know, far-reaching in scope, and, and they're, they're long, and this, that, and the other thing, but for lack of a better phrase, there's... There's really not a whole lot of too many notes things going on. A lot of it is restrained. It's you know they're they're working more with the structure of the songs than than just you know noodling as fast as they can. And you know so I get on the surface it's 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 a punching bag and it's it's the poster child for the excess of progressive music. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's nearly as, as bad as I always thought it was. That, that's fascinating because I've, I must have had a great deal of patience in my youth because <laughs> I had listened to this album many times. And although really, you know, tracks one and four had always been the ones that had stuck with me and I was really, really happy when at the masterworks tour they played um uh the last track the name is escaping me new song yes ritual. yes ritual um you know and and it, it's still the the track that i like the most off of it but but this go around you know it's to me it sounded like they were bored uh putting it together and the 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 nitpick, like the the picking of different lit riffs from from different, uh, different you know previous albums, you know little little nods of the hat, if you will. To uh, to me, it just it 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 was difficult to get through this go around, and I can see people like either absolutely loving it because it, it is like a pinnacle moment and of of progressive rock music. And it is also at the same time, you know, what the worst part about progressive rock music, because it's just extremely, it, it comes across to me as extremely self-indulgent and, and just not quite true to whatever they're trying to express. It just becomes overdone. See, and it's, it's funny because, you know, like I said, that was always sort of my impression of Tails. I don't think that right now. But I do think everything you just described explains why I can't stand Tormato. 
I think Tormano does everything you just said, and not so much here, with the exception perhaps of the ancient. I think the ancient is, I, I just can't figure that thing out. But you know, in for me, I see, and, and you know, sort of putting this in perspective. So keep in mind, the last episode I'm talking about how close to the edge is the most perfect album ever recorded tales in a lot of ways is you know it's like it's the follow-up to the masterpiece it's um gosh i don't even know what what a uh what an appropriate analogy would be um it's it's the power windows to grace under pressure. Oh, wait a second. Uh, wait a grace, second. Did you just compare pressure. Tales of the Topographic Oceans to power windows? <laughs> not not wait directly. A no, not directly. Not directly. And that's not even a good example because obviously <laughs> you're, you're right. It's a terrible it's, example. It's a much better. But but in the in the regard that I, I mean would. And this is way far out here, but would you agree that Grace Under Pressure is perhaps a better expression of that that period of rush than Power Windows? Not that Power Windows isn't good, but I think Grace Under Pressure is truly exceptional. Oh my goodness, we should just go to Rush next time. <laughs> All right, I'm not getting you here. I uh, so for me, so for me, Power Windows is a completely different era. You know, like the well, we should just snip this part out and attach it to to whatever episode that is. But well, signals was the, signals was the follow up to to uh, moving pictures, which was good, but right. not quite the same uh, caliber. Grace Under Pressure was the next step for them, and it was fantastic. But then they kind of figured out how they wanted to do it, and then they then they really moved into the the, the ballpark of masterpiece them with um, Power Windows. Power Windows is one of the best Rush albums of all time, Joe. Hmm. I still think Grace Under Pressure is better, but whatever. It's great. It's great, but Joe or uh, Ken, what do you think? Oh, I'm not qualified to speak on Rush. Not tonight, and and barely when we get to Rush will I be qualified to speak. On Rush. Qualified? Just I what's mean, your gut feeling? Power Windows are graced under pressure. Um, you know, I spent way too much time listening to Hold Your Fire. I, I don't know how that ended up in my hands. Um, great so, album. Yeah, yeah. I I, I I was very moving pictures. Clearly. And delved a little bit backwards and delved a little bit forwards. And I, I went to see, a, a, after giving up on Rush, I went to see Hold Your Fire and then had a rebirth. Okay. All right. That's how, great, that's how great Tales of the Topographic Oceans are. We can't even stay on, on topic. <laughs> <laughs> There's parts of this. And I, I didn't actually take a quick peek to see all of the production credits and all of that stuff. Um, so, like, it's Eddie Offord is there again producing. Of course. 
and engineering. And like, I, I really, like, I just seriously wonder how much mind altering substances were involved only because like, there's nobody hold, you know, holding the reins back. There's nobody saying, Hey, you know what? The ancients, the last three minutes is brilliance, but the first 15 we could do without, right? Like no one is saying that. And, um, I, I, I feel like ritual is the only song that actually can sustain a 20 minute, uh, a 20 minute piece. But even that there's still a lot of nonsense that could just be cut out. Um, what? The first song is brilliant. There's some hooks in there, you know, I like brilliant. it. It could have been, so, it could have been trimmed down to 18 minutes. You know, that's all I'm saying. So, so mm -hmm. think about, um, and I, I hope, I hope this will maybe illustrate this a little bit better. When we were talking about Marillion, Marbles was a pinnacle piece. What came after Marbles? Somewhere else. Somewhere else. Somewhere else. Not bad. <laughs> Not nearly as good as Marvel's. Um, in a lot of ways, there was a certain amount of, of derivative feeling to it, you know? And, and that's what I'm seeing here. And everything that you said, Paul, is absolutely spot on. There was nobody, you know, keeping these guys in check. And they just went hog wild. And, I mean, you guys, you know, we've had this conversation before. You've seen interviews, conversations with John Anderson. You you can't let John run roughshod over everything because he's just going to go, which is, mm -hmm. you know, and, and he had this grand idea and someone let him do it. The um, you, you, what you're getting at is very well stated on Wikipedia. Um, you know, Eddie Offord, for example, I think there was a psychological effect of, oh, we're going to do a double album. Now we can make things twice as long, twice as boring, and twice as drawn out. That's that's that, Offord. They're number one fan. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then you've got a quote here from Brian Lane, the band's manager, um, uh, thinking some flowers and trees would lessen the tension with the band that the I album had caused. Oh, you, you're, you're well aware of that, that story, the flowers and trees? Yeah, and every, all the trees and the flowers ended up dying and whatnot. Oh, so, sounds, yeah, very metaphoric. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, a decision was made to stay in London and record at Morgan Studios in Williston. Probably due to the fact that the studio housed the country's first 24-track tape machine. Um, and so that, that, that's cool. Um, roughly one month into rehearsal, the band took a break from recording, during which Anderson vacated to Marrakesh with his wife and developed <laughs> lyrics during his stay there. So that's the other thing I wanted to jump to. You know, you don't want to let Anderson run roughshod over your interview, over your recording session, and you don't want to let him loose in Marrakesh. I wouldn't think so. No, no, no. So, uh, Squire worked in the studio for as long as 16-hour days, seven days a week on the album. So, uh, wow, we can really blame uh, 
Um, oh no! And Ozzy was in the adjacent studio. This is just ridiculous. <laughs> That's oh, right, because no. Wakeman Wakeman would left and like recorded with Ozzy, right? Oh no! <laughs> Quite possibly. Oh my god! Um, <laughs> Ozzy recalled the Yes Studio had a model cow with electronic udders fitted. <laughs> In a small barn to give the room an earthy feel. <laughs> oh God! All right, so, look, I found my notes. Nice. So, and and this is actually, yeah. I mean, release date was in 1973. Produced by Yes and Eddie Offord. Um, released on Atlantic. And we haven't talked about this yet, given which is interesting, given our conversation last episode. We had the one seemingly critical personnel change here, where Bill Bruford's gone, and now we have Alan White. Right. We've got uh, the four songs, and then the the blurb from the beginning there is a uh, sixth studio album from the English rock band Yes, released as a double album on December 7th, 1973. It is a concept album based on singer John Anderson's interpretation of a footnote in the autobiography of a yogi from 1948 that describes four bodies of Hindu text, collectively named the Shastras. After he pitched the idea to guitarist Steve Howe, the two wrote the themes and instrumentation of four sidelong tracks based on each text. Keyboardist Rick Wakeman disagreed with the album's concept, and musical direction of the album, and left the group after its tour. So, you know, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I did a little bit of research. Apparently, um, ironically, the album was a success. It apparently easily made gold, which was something back in those days, nothing much today. It actually spent two weeks at number one on the UK charts, if you can imagine that. Wow. It reached number six on Billboard. So, you know... Well, I think that I think that is simply... Um, that is simply the residual effect of... of how amazing the Yes album, Fragile and Close to the Edge was. You know, here comes the next album, and I'm sure it was promoted. Oh, it's, you know, four sides with four, and everyone was just like, oh, this is just... Just like the, we all were going to see the Dark Tower this weekend. We were all like, oh, this is going to be so awesome. And then we just gobbled it up. Um, Not so much. Yeah. So, and and a couple other things that I, I found, and I didn't realize this. I guess, you know, at, this was where, you know, on, on this the hubris sort of got out of control everywhere, including the huge gatefold from, um, from Roger Dean. And I guess Roger and his brother designed these very elaborate stage sets, which apparently were the, the basis for a lot of the lampooning in terms of stage dressing that were in Spinal Tap, which I... I never knew that there was any sort of connection there to yes, because obviously we didn't see yes at this time, but I just, right. I found that to be kind of humorous. 
The absolute best story that I came across, though, was on this tour, apparently during a UK leg, during some stretch of music wherein he was bored, one can only imagine it was probably somewhere in the ancient or something, Rick Wakeman actually had a PA bring him out a chicken curry. And he just sat there and noshed on his chicken curry on stage. Yeah, I love that story. And then Wait. that sounds so Wakeman. It's it perfect. does sound so Wakeman. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I know. I, so, I, 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 the song he played on was Sabra Cadabra. He played the mini moog with Sabbath, and they paid him in beer because he wouldn't take money. So. <laughs> That is going in my playlist. So, you know, it, obviously there was a lot going on. And, and the, the point I was trying to make was, you know, they, they reached the pinnacle with Close to the Edge. And with this album, they were like, we can do anything. And they tried to do the same sort of thing. And it just, you know, you can't get lightning in the bottle twice like that. At least not that close together. Um, and, you know, I think it just, they, they probably, it, you know, much like we did with the, the four middle Marillion albums, they probably could have made a really, really solid single disc album out of this. If, if someone had been there and said, you know, like you said, Paul, Hey, the last three minutes of this song, perfect. Rest of it, get it out of here. Um, yeah. you know, for me, I really, I really, really do think that the revealing science of God, the first track, is is really, really very good. I enjoy that tremendously. I've always enjoyed that song. Um, the others, you know, I I like parts of them. Other parts, not so much. Um, but you know, like I said, for me, it's it, there's nothing about tales that I find absolutely unendurable and um yeah i don't know yeah i I, th I think that's a great that's a great point i agree with that I, I i don't think my younger self of 20 years ago would have imagined me saying some of the things i'm saying about this recording right now and um and there there's a lot of good stuff on here to like it i think the moral of the story is like you know I'm sure people who love progressive rock, you know, to its, you know, who just want more and more and more. And they, you know, they, they love, they love the length of things. You know, this, this is the ultimate. And there are some really good stuff on here. I'll probably be humming ritual tomorrow because we're talking about it tonight. Cause there are, there are pieces that you can hang on to and, and stick with you, you know, but you put it in the entire catalog and it just, it just definitely, um, you know, I think they overshot, you know, their attempts of, of doing this and, and, uh, you know, it's okay. It's okay to not love Tales of the Topographic Ocean, folks. It's okay. You don't All right, have let's to. Let's talk about the hooks. Um, the one you're referring to, I think, is what happened to this song we knew so well in Revealing yeah. Science of God. Yeah. It, it's a brilliant hook and it would have stood alone as a relative pop song or, or an extended pop song in the yes sphere. Uh, it's just really beautiful. 
And I hear yeah. that what happened to this song we knew so well, it could refer to uh, something hippy dippy where the song was supposed to mean something, or it could just be a song from childhood. But it definitely evokes images for me. I think it's a brilliant hook. Yeah. yeah. It could have been Rick Wakeman's opinion at, you know, time mark 16 <laughs> minutes and 30 seconds of, <laughs> of the song. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right, Ken. It's it's uh, it's it's perfect. That's a perfect example. Well, and and you know, I I think the revealing science of, of God is is a really really good example of them composing this a long form song without or while sort of restraining themselves, you know, in in terms of again. Looking ahead, I think about, um, you know, where these guys wound up however many years in the future with Brother of Mine. Just a lot going on there, guys. Bring it back a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and in this particular case, you know, all the pieces are a little bit more subtle throughout and, you know, dare I say, melodic. And, you know, and, and the, really the only time that things sort of pick up the pace there, Rick Wakeman has two sections in this, in this song that just kicked my ass. The first is when he cuts in with that, uh, with that piano bit, I don't know, probably a third of the way through the song. And then he gets the, uh, the killer straight up keyboard solo, um, you know, in the last half of, of the, uh, of the track. And, you know, it again. It's. I think it's as close to sort of the, the 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 dynamic and the interplay and the the everyone gets a turn thing that was done so well and close to the edge as they're going to get until you know maybe awaken. Hmm. Ah. Oh. Okay. Possibly. Um, I put all my eggs into one basket with track two. Uh, based on previous conversations, I knew that tracks one and four were spoken for. And <laughs> four, yeah. I mean, and, and they both have hooks. Um, so I, 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 um, I already had a fondness for track two. And it... it uh, Meanders more than one and four. Uh, it waits to rock longer than one and four. It's, it, it, it could be a sleeper, but for, 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 for what it's worth, um, the remembering, I, the memory, um, really you know, stuck in my craw. And I, uh, you know, I think when it, when it came to a vote in the previous episode, I think I voted for one and two rather than one and four. Um, uh, it does finally rock. Um, and it's like a, a seven. It's like a slow kind of pounding thing that they do when, when, they, when they get into that. Um, and that. That in itself could have been a pop song. And, and I really wish it was, keeping with the theme of the album. Uh, but the way that they get back in with the verses... And uh, prior to this, I talked about the word relayer. 
not not only as an album but as a lyric in the remember yeah yeah it, it's beautiful the way they do that relayer hold out um i actually feel like there's there are some musical foreshadowings to some of relayer um but i i should have gone back and listened a little bit more closely but i never did but yeah i like that yeah it, i i listened i listened to tales again today um in preparation for this and you know, Ken, I was with you in that previous discussion that I always, you know, I was always like, give me tracks one and two and, you know, you can keep the other two. And as I was listening to it, I, you know, I guess it struck me that, yeah, it does take a long time for the remembering to sort of get into it, but it's not an unpleasant wait. It's it's sort of a, a different vibe and sound, but it's in it in its own sort of way it's very beautiful and you know again i'm weird with the way that you know the the things that i fixate on and the things that sort of keep me going or satisfy me and i think there the, there's the one the one hook line i think they only do it twice and it shows up uh, like in the middle of the slow part and then somewhere near the very end it's that whole, and I do think very well. It, right, and, and, and in in the perfect. first in the first part, you know, it's like it's it's a hook out of nowhere, and and it's just that, and you're like, oh, wait, give me some more of that, please. And right. I don't, of course. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> ah. and uh, but but for me, that's enough to sort of sort of salvage the song, if you will. And I'm I'm willing to sort of sit in that space for a while, you know, just waiting for another taste of that. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Agreed. That's the hook that brought me in. Yep. Now, and of course, you know, I can't, I can't talk about tales with, without talking about ritual because, you know, Paul, this was an area where you, you know, back in the day were well ahead of me. And I remember when you discovered this and you spent, you know, all the, uh, I don't know what you want to call the, the free form time before band practice for, I don't know, probably a couple of months playing ritual nonstop. Huh. <laughs> and you just, you know, you, you were preaching ritual left and right. And I don't know that any of us were listening um, I don't know that I remember that. That's amazing. Yeah, you wow. would you would you would play that riff constantly while everyone was tuning up and getting ready. Huh. Oh wow. Was that the that one? The one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, I do remember that. Okay. And and I you know, I I I don't even know if I had tails or if I had it, I just didn't know what the hell to do with it. But I I know I I was not at all familiar with with the song, and I'm like I don't know. Paul really likes this. I should probably try it out. <laughs> <laughs> and and the funny thing was when I finally did, it wasn't ritual that got my mind got my attention. It was yeah. the revealing science of God, which I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. Why doesn't he like this song? But. I probably didn't listen to it very much. That I probably 
could only could only focus on 20 minutes at a time. So I ended up with, with ritual. I don't know why. <laughs> that's, that's all our, our immature detention spans could take. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, there's a lot with this album that sort of leaves you lacking. Um, you know, Rick Wakeman clearly wasn't into it. Despite, like I said, I, I thought he was brilliant on the first song. What about, given all of the conversation we had about Bruford last time, what about um, the influence of bringing in Alan White here? And, you know, how did that have a significant impact on this? Would Tales have been different, better, if Bruford had been there? Or was the whole thing too far gone from the beginning? I'm willing to weigh in there based on Bruford's displeasure with Close to the Edge. I think he takes arrangements personally. I think he cares, you know, as, as far as Bruford does. Mm -hmm. I think Bruford really took heart with the, the arrangements in all of his albums. Uh, he must have been a conductor from behind the kit, and he must have had a pretty good influence with, with John and Chris in particular, and reeling them in to make the songs palatable. And, you know, the, the fact that he would actually leave Yes over the arrangements and the length and the chaos process, it, it, it's probably a loss of an editor and white is not an editor. He's probably more of a listener and he just, you know, fit in more. That's my guess. I mean, he, well, you have to assume he, he, he was the new guy in town too. Yeah. You know, he, he may yeah. not necessarily felt like he had a full voice at that point either. I mean, and, and Oh, and to support the idea that Bruford himself is a strong editor and arranger, you just have to look at the ensembles he put together and the kind of pieces that he did after that. You know, some of it's a little bit fusion, um, uh, it, it, but, it, but it's always interesting. He's always, like, juggling the balls in the air. So I think, I think, I think Bruford has a, a strong uh, talent for, you know, amusing people and, 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 and making things fun. You know, so you take him away and you get a tales of topographic oceans. Makes sense. To me. Well, <laughs> you know, and and Ken, I I was going to summarize because that seemed to be exactly where you were leading us. Is that you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, part of the difference then, and part of the part of the reason why tales got so out of hand, if that's the right word, was the lack of Bill Bruford. Yep. Plain and simple. Interesting. That is interesting. I mean, we hear um, uh, Anderson yeah. and his lyrics and everything, and we and we we hear uh, 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 plenty of uh, how all over the place. I do. Th I, when I was listening to this, I was on such a Bill Bruford high. You know, the first couple times I listened through to this, I was really trying to pay attention to the, the drums and. I think Alan White did a tremendous job. I mean, he's 
he's subtle, he's dynamic, you know, he's, you know, he, he definitely has, a, I, I think, a different approach, but, you know, he's an excellent drummer and he comes, he has various, you know, styles in his pocket. So, uh, you know, I, I think, I think he does a, a great job on all the songs and, um, you know, it's kind of a shame, you know, about, um, you know, after going through the tour, like, this is the album that he gets to record first with the voice, you know, like, for Epic. Can you imagine? Snoozers. Um, and then he goes right into Gates <laughs> of Delirium after that. Um, <laughs> and yet he's still with the band. So, you know, you got to give him some credit. Well, I mean, he really is at the, the heyday of the band, right? I mean... His like his first his first album with the band goes gold right away, which you know was you know amazing, and you know I think at this point in time their tours were just getting more and more. I mean they were they were literally at the top of their game, you know. For as much of a bashing as I expect Relayer to get, like you know that was one of their most successful tours, you know, to date. When, oh, you know, uh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, I think it was a slower culture, you know. From what I remember, barely as a child, you know, life moved a little slower without computers. So you could, you, 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 as long as FM radio was playing roundabout and whatever else, then sure, they were, they had amazing grounds. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say that um, Alan White gets a thumbs up for his performance on Tales of the Topographic Oceans, and but we do question his ability. To edit, editorialize the performances <laughs> of his bandmates. Yeah, so so apparently, you know, Tails suffered from the lack of a a strong producing um, presence, if you will. <laughs> in, in yeah, whatever form that would have taken. Do we know if Eddie Offord was up to his tricks of recording just a few minutes at a time? You know, I haven't seen any, <laughs> excuse the pun, any tales of that nature from this recording session. Yeah. Um, that's ah. and, and the reason why I, I point that out, that there aren't any, is that there seems to be a plethora of such stories surrounding the previous three albums. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't know if, they did things differently or we just didn't hear about it. But I, I haven't, like I said, I haven't come across anything like that. All I found it was does, the It doesn't seem to be like the most pleasant um, experience for them in the studio with this record. So maybe they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah, it's 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 really funny in in all of the sort of reference materials that I have, such as they are, you know, it's there's very little said about this album, and and even when they do talk about the album, it's more about it's more about the fact that John and Steve wrote it on the Close to the Edge tour, and then they go like right into the 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 successful world tour in support of it. Almost nothing is said of the album itself, which is ridiculous when you're talking about yeah. what is it? You know, an hour and a half of of music, and no one says boo about it. But and probably you know, 
Yeah. Well, they must have liked it if they were trying to do it in its entirety in the live tour. Well, not everyone liked it, I guess. Yeah, that's clear. You know, and, and I can see... You know, and, and I don't know Rick Wakeman. I don't know that much about Rick Wakeman. Rick Wakeman seems like a wonderfully funny fellow. But I can see if you get a bored Rick Wakeman, that's probably not a good influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I can see him being almost disruptive mm -hmm. simply because he's bored. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It amazes me that Chris Squire wasn't more like Wakeman. Um, it, it, it seemed like, at least during this period, it wasn't just Anderson and his Marrakesh, and it wasn't just Howe and his long, strung-out, you know, classical me melodies. But, but they actually had Squire in, hook, line, and sinker. And for all these lyrics and harmonies, Anderson had Squire in hook, line, and sinker. So it was mm. it was a pretty powerful trilogy of like-minded people. And and maybe that was you know all it took. I mean you know I and that that would be interesting to kind of look into. Um, you know the sort of the the shifting alliances in on various albums. And, yep. and you know what if you get any any three, you know, in alignment, how does how does that drive the music one way or another? Yeah. Um, yep. I, I'll I'll be interested when we get to going for the one to see how that came about. Um, but that's uh, we're not there yet. Okay. I, I would like to volunteer a segue uh, okay. into, into the next album. I mean, I mean, Tales, we, 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 we articulated it pretty well. Um, you articulated it very well, Joe, when you said that despite being lengthy and, and, and you know, prolific, it, it, it wasn't noty. But yeah. they made they made up for that in spades. So do you see where I'm going with this transition? I oh. do, I do see where you're going for it. All right, take the ball and run with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't want to get in between you two at this point. Well, with uh, with, with Patrick Moraz in mind, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I the, 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 there were definitely some notes to be had. Well, and, 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 you know, that's so that's interesting. So Rick Wakeman gets bored, takes his curry and goes elsewhere and becomes, you know, a prolific solo artist. Um, and, and you know, it's almost like I, they walked into someone's backyard and said, oh, here's Patrick Mraz. We'll take this guy. And, <laughs> Well, well, there, there, someone auditioned before him. If you check out the, the, the some of his interviews online, it was Vangelis. Um, yeah, and he Vangelis left his stuff in the studio, uh, and they ended up borrowing or renting that. And Moraz played Vangelis's equipment. Um, really? I yeah. Did not 
Yeah. I guess Vangelis would have been more in the John Anderson kind of dreamy vibe. And more as yeah. took, took it in a fusion direction. Kind of more as a, uh, a, another Steve Howe, perhaps. Another jazz player, I think. And and the amazing thing, and I, I you know I don't have again I don't have my notes for for relayer because I'm a flake. But I was I was you know doing a little bit of research again looking at this today, and I want to say Mraz joined the band in like I don't know April or May of '74. They started recording in like. I think they recorded through the summer, so maybe July, August type thing, and they released the album at the end of the year. So, bam, bam, bam. You talk about the world being slower back there than Ken. But Yes was making albums at an amazing rate, given, you know, what they were doing. They weren't just, yeah, you know, say what you want to about the influence of, of punk and, and stripping everything back to the basics. That's not what these guys were doing. I, you know, I, this, for all of, of, all of the music that they wrote, uh, I can only imagine that it wasn't that easy, but maybe it was, maybe they were just in such a fantastic place that the stuff just flowed out like, like water. I don't know. And, you know, since obviously we're in, we're in Relayer, which opens up with Gates of Delirium, which is, you know has its own thing I, I you have to you have to tell the story or talk about the story of you know John's account of, of the creation of this that he came to the band with this thing completely done and I'm, I'm I've seen the interview Paul I know you have Ken I don't know if you've seen the interview with John from probably back in the early 90s I would guess is when he gave this and, you know, he's describing, you know, he had this entire composition and he brings it to the band and he sits down at the piano and he bangs on the piano for, you know, 25 minutes and turns around and says, well, what'd you think? <laughs> and hmm. the, the first time I, I heard that story, I'm like, there is no freaking way that he did that. But, you know, Given that, you know, John is who John is, and the interesting thing about John, one of the interesting things that I find about John Anderson is, you know, yes, John Anderson, you know, he's got this little elfin voice, and he's, you know, he's got his hand gestures, and his, he says weird and, and random things. But anyway, so, so John's got this sort of flighty thing about him, and he says weird, random things in concert, and, you know, he wants to you know, write these spacey lyrics that no one can figure out what the hell they are. But you also get the impression that there's this other side of John Anderson that is incredibly dogged. And when, when he wants something, by God, he's going to get it. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, maybe this becomes reasonable at that point i don't know you know the first time i heard him say that on an interview he said you know the first time you walked in with an entire piece of music written from beginning to end 
And I was just stunned to hear that, like like you're saying, Joe. But I, I think on other you know accounts that I've read, you know, he banged it out of the piano. Uh, he admittedly said it wasn't the best rendition of anything he's ever written, and happy that the the the, the gang had understood enough of it that you know they were they were willing to take a chance on the song and and then they started piecing through all of the different parts sure there there are i think relayer is is it is one of my best my favorite yes pieces uh i think there's every bit of interplay uh between the instruments um there are I feel like Chris Squire is a little less present in a lot of of Gates of Delirium than than in other other pieces, but um, but when he makes himself felt, uh, his presence felt, it, it's certainly there, uh, pretty strongly. But I I love Gates of Delirium. It it starts with the a, a wonderful uh, type of overture. There are a couple of themes that ring throughout. There are themes in the beginning, in the middle, and then and then they re, they, they they change. They they alter into more of a minor minor key, and then they and then they kind of expand into a a, a derivative of that theme. And and um, the words are fantastic. Um, there are just there are just so many moments that 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 stick with me throughout this whole thing. And of all of you know, this song is for me just like close to the edge. Like you don't really? even realize that I don't even realize that that twenty two minutes have gone by. It's it's just fantastic. The the the, the part that is uh, you know kind of balances that out is that in the in the long tail of Steve Howe's guitar sounding becoming more annoying and piercing and nasal. I think. <laughs> layer is as bad as it ever gets and um ah. gates of delirium when they're doing the whole battle sequence and all of the crazy reverbed guitars and you know i i, I wish that that patrick moraz would play a little bit more because his like his like is is wonderful and um i like it a lot better than some of the steve house stuff that happens and and the way they try to, they just kind of overblow the battle scene. Um, unfortunately, I get my wish to hear more Patrick Mraz later on the <laughs> album. Um, yeah. But, uh, I, you know, and then the the way that the way that that Gates of Delirium ends by sort of the battle ending, and then the 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 peacefulness of soon and that whole section is just a fantastic uh, ending to that. It really punctuates the whole piece. It resolves it, and it even brings back one of the themes from earlier in a very lovely manner that just ends beautifully. And it is a very, very complete piece. One of, I, in my opinion, one of their most complete pieces of music uh, throughout their whole history. So... I'm a huge fan of, of Gates of Delirium, and I think the rest of Relayer, I don't even listen to. It's As far as I'm concerned, Relayer has one song on it, and that's it. The other two tracks on Relayer are completely superfluous. There's just no point. There's, there's nothing about them 
in my opinion, that really comes close to um, to Gates of Delirium, and you know, you you and I and and, and on this podcast, we've been talking sort of around about um, Steve Howe's guitar tones, and it's it's just so funny because throughout everything and i think even even to this day and part of the reason why i think steve howe has such a difficult time playing trevor songs among the fact beyond the fact he can't stand power chords is is the fact that his his guitar sound is so and there's no other way i can describe this other than unslick you know it, it's just it, yeah. it just, you know, it, and and again, I love Steve Howe. Steve Howe does amazing things. Um, his guitar sound is different. Okay, to, to be fair he, to Steve, rock players generally have two sounds. It's the power chord sound, and then they up the bass incredibly to play the high notes. So that, despite the fact that you're playing very high up on the neck on the high strings, you're still getting balls because you're unnaturally accentuating the bass. And how never figured that out. <laughs> okay. But he comes from a country tradition where there's this natural Stratocaster, this natural Martin guitar kind of thing happening. And he, he really does stay true to that for most of his career. So that's... I was you know, it's it's funny because I want to say, and I just seen this tonight. I, I probably should run downstairs and, and get it. It may even be in here. Um, I think it was in the other thing I was looking at, though. There was actually, they made a point that Relayer, he didn't use his normal Gibson. Most of Relayer was, I believe, recorded using a 55... Telly. That's correct. Wow. Oh, what did I did I did, did I, I probably said Strat or something. But um No, you would you well you had mentioned his Gibson, which is what he normally plays. But for whatever reason, you know, uh, and you know, we've we've also talked about Steve's myriad uh guitars and instruments in general. But for me and and, and it's funny because you know, here again, given the lens in which we're doing this, you know, a lot of, of certainly these early podcasts, I've got, you know, I have to revert back to, you know, myself as a teenager. And Relayer was was the one that, for whatever reason, I couldn't wait to get into. I knew enough about the Gates of Delirium, and the the artwork spoke to me, and it was... That was the album that I had targeted. That was going to be, you know, the the one, you know, over the top yes album that that was going to be for me. And um, and I couldn't wait to get into it. And the Gates of Delirium, I totally get everything, Paul, that you described. I'm I'm there. I feel it. I understand it. Um, and and you know that the soon section, it. It really is such a just a fantastic 
sort of transition out of you know the, it's it's so well done it's it's almost beyond description so that was cool i got it the other two songs never really did it for me um but honestly gates of delirium was good enough i honestly didn't even really care i could you know i could take it or leave it listening to it now though um well musically i still think it's it has all the qualities we've discussed. It does suffer from the fact that it just sounds awful to me. Absolutely awful. It it sounds like it's in a box about this big, you know? And, and Alan White's playing on little teeny tiny drums that are, you know, being mic'd from about a mile away. And... It's unfortunate that the sonic qualities of, you know, uh, of the previous albums just aren't there. Whatever they did, they didn't do it well in terms of capturing the sound on Relayer. And I, for me, it definitely, it, it uh, you know, it, it suffers from that. Maybe they recorded it too fast. Is it fair to say that? Was that a joke. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> is, is, is it fair to say, being two years apart, um, that Supper's Ready had any influence on the Gates of Delirium as far as being an epic song with a bit of a war battle theme happening at the end? Wow. I hadn't expected to jump the tracks over into. Uh... Yeah. Well, Genesis. you guys, you guys dragged me into Rush. I'm going to drag you into Genesis. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to use your quote, Ken. I don't think I'm qualified to make a statement about that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can pick up on this later on. It, it, it just, it, that wasn't prepared. That just hit me. Um, but just to complete the thought, you know, it's 1974. It's two years after uh, Supper's Ready was released. Well, and, and, you know, 1974, and, and I should know this, but, I mean, we were deep into the whole Vietnam thing at that point, right? Were we not? I mean, granted, we were all four years old, but... Oh, for both albums, sure. Yeah, and, and you know, so that was obviously something that was, you know, part of the, the sort of social fabric at the time, I would guess. Um, and it, it's interesting that, um, you know, may, you know, it's not just yes, who were hearing and feeling this, um, you know, cause, cause clearly there were, I, I would imagine there were some similarities, you know, amongst this larger group of musicians who were all making this progressive rock. I'm, I'm just kind of guessing at this point, um, you know, and this is not this is not John's first you know song about war. Although this is obviously much more direct, um, as we've discussed before. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, but what but was... let's let's put a pin in this, and and when we get to Genesis, we should definitely you remember to come back and sort of revisit this concept and see you know what we think because I'm not I'm not 
Well, I mean, for, I mean, just, just throwing this out there, soon, as beautiful as it is, I, I'm waiting for them to sing Wandering in the Chaos, the Battle Has Left, High on the Mountain of Human Flesh, uh, Plateau <laughs> of Green Grass and Green Fields. So, so, so y- you have this amazing swell followed by just dreamy sounds that could go either direction. Uh, soon, soon, soon being a little bit more musically viable than um, uh, some of the Genesis more comedy-oriented stuff, I would say. Um, it, gave them, it gave them a single, too, and quite frankly, a cop-out in their current tour, the Estival tour, where they are uh, supposedly doing a song from each album, from uh, Yes all the way through to Drama. Oh, but they just and do soon? <laughs> and they do soon, and they call that a song from Relayer, which I think is a cop-out. Yeah, that's okay. They should have to do all of Gates of Delirium. (laughs) (laughs) They should have to. All right. This is... All right. I I prepared remarks for this. Um, Gates of Delirium is dreadful in many of the live renditions. It... 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 it, On the original recording, I think it lives up to Anderson's original design in some form... But I, I've heard overly distorted, overly rocking renditions where it's just like Alan White mercilessly beating out odd times with no feeling and, and, and just it doesn't translate to me live. I just have you heard a good version of Gates of Delirium live? Uh, it's only the one that I saw live at the Masterworks tour. And it oh. was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. But, I, but you know, it's funny, Ken, and through all of this, I, I have not, all through these records and, and albums of Yes, I've never gone to listen to really anything live to, to check it out, no. Mm. I'll, have um, to do, I'll have to do that. I, I can imagine. I mean, it's, it's already on the edge of unruliness on the recording. I can imagine that it can, can completely out of hand um, live. Yeah, I think that the delivery needs to be pristine and a little bit more on the acoustic side. And as soon as it becomes too electrified and too powerful, I think you lose the message. I don't know. Joe, did you experience any of this? I I have never heard nor seen Gates live. Hmm. So I, I can't speak to it. I'm very interested now to go check it out. Paul, on the Masterworks tour, we've talked about this before. That was Igor, right? Yes, yes. Because yeah. I would be curious, Ken, to know, you know, who was who was playing keys on whatever versions that you heard as well, because, you know, I, I don't know if that has a, has a part in it or not. Clearly, you know, Squire and White and, and how are common themes here. Um, but, but no, I've, I've never heard nor seen it live, and I would be very keen to... To sort of experience that now, I've, um, you know, as as a result of this, and I was telling Paul this, you know, I've 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 been in investigating some different versions of live, yes, um, trying to sort of understand how where they were led to where they wound up. So one of the things that I've I've listened to since the last time we spoke. 
was the um, the ABWH live because I wanted I wanted to to know more about Bruford and I'm I'm still of the opinion that whatever magic Bill Bruford had from 1970 to 1972 was all that he had and whatever happened to him between 1972 and 1988 or 89 whenever the hell ABWH came out uh, you know it's just not even the same person <laughs> but mm, that, mm. Kind of, yeah, that's off the off the uh, the trail for this evening. It, it was a special time for sure, um, but maybe maybe Chris Squire and the rest of the mates just beat it out of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely the live version that that ruined Gates for me was on Spotify, but it, it would take me fifteen minutes to find it. But um, uh, just in the fact that you guys haven't really heard much of it live, except for Masterworks, speaks volumes about how difficult it was to reproduce. I can't. I can't even imagine. And, and that's, you know, that's why I'm. I'm very curious to go on Spotify and find this at this point because I just I want to hear how this this works. You know, a lot of times, and and I happen to see yes on the tour when they were doing Fragile, front mm. to back. Which, you know, the, the fact that they were able to work out, that was interesting. That's and, amazing, yeah. And, and, you know, you think about, um, obviously, some of the big ones, um, you know, Heart of the Sunrise and Awaken, you know, they can really do flawlessly front to back. And you're just like, wow, that's, that's really pretty cool. But, yeah. Gates of Delirium, I think, is maybe a little bit something different. For me, you know, with these with these two albums, I think, you know, as I was sitting here thinking about it, um, you know, I, I think if you had taken if you had taken maybe disc one of of Tales, Gates of Delirium on side three. And then you took the good bits out of, you know, the rest. You could fill up a, a fourth side. You could have had a decent double album just from, from that without having you know, all the extra fluff. It brings up the point that we skipped Yes songs, uh, which is a really nice collaboration just prior to Tales. It was released. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Tales being um, 1973 or 74, depending on how you look at it. And uh, no, 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 73 was Tales. 73. And 74 would have been real later. Okay. Yes, it was 73, but it was prior to Tales. So yeah, I think, I think yes, songs, yes Songs came out in the very beginning of, of 73, and then Tales came out at the very end of 73. Yeah, if I remember the stories correctly, um, Alan White maybe got some residuals that would have gone to Bruford because Bruford quit. There was some story <laughs> like that where Bruford didn't get it, everything he would have gotten on Yes Songs because he quit. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's funny. I want to say, I, I want to say Alan shows up on Yes Songs. I think both of them are on there, but who knows? Oh, oh I found it. Okay. Um, 
Weird. Relayer Deluxe Edition has a Gates of Delirium remastered. Um, that's very interesting. And so, there, and there, yes, shows which was a live album. I think released like in the eight, early eighties has a live version of Gates of Delirium from nineteen seventy six, which apparently features Patrick Moraz playing on it. So that's got to be. Yes, wait, yes, shows has a live Gates. Uh, yeah, apparently it does. So apparently I have heard it, because I used to own Yes shows. That's the missing link. Apparently it left no impression on me whatsoever. (laughs) Sounds pretty good, right? Just listen to it now, but um, just just think about what it must have been like living in the early 70s at the heyday. Like, here's a band that basically since 1969, all they've been doing is performing in concerts and releasing albums i mean they released like four albums in that in that four-year period and they toured every year (laughs) and they toured all throughout and then in between their next album they decide to release a live album (laughs) i mean (laughs) exactly that's how we got here yep that is crazy All right. So yeah, I, uh, I'll have to check that out. I will have to check out the live version, Ken. And and I'm I'll I need to go down and check my. I don't think I've got my yes shows anymore. I want to say it suffered a horrible accident at some point in my life, mm. um, which is sad. But that's why we have Spotify now. I'll find it there. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, talking about you know the the Anderson effect and like. And, you know, Ken, I think it's very interesting that you're talking about how, you know, it's sounding very, like, uninspired in the live. You know, the the thing that happened after Relayer and after the tour of Relayer is that they took a little bit of a hiatus and they all kind of went off and did their own thing. And um, I was telling Joe uh, the other night, Ken, that as I started... You know, as I put these, this second group of uh, albums that we were going to listen to in a playlist, um, after I got to Relayer, I decided to, um, instead of going right into um, the, the next, instead of going right into Going for the One, I decided to listen to John Anderson's Elias of Sun Hillow. And it was so different and so refreshing. And it was. And I just, I felt as a listener, an amazing relief hearing that. And it seemed like a perfect segue going back into going for the one that, you know, whatever was happening in the band and all of the stuff that had happened up to that point, it really seemed like, you know, that they were ready, they were ready to just, you know, take a break from one another and, uh, and find themselves again. So Elias fits in between Relayer and going for the one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was recorded in between there, is what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Thank you. I think I should listen to that. You should. I I, I think you'll find, you might like it better than both Relayer and Tales of the Topographic Oceans, but hard to say. You know, I think, 
you know, it, it's it's something like that as we get into going for the one in the next episode, obviously, which is sort of, you know, the the rebirth, if you will, of of yes with with Wakeman coming back, and I think there's there was a certain amount of freshness to that album. Paul, you may disagree based on our recent conversation. Um, yeah, it may be interesting to sort of look at some of the things that that they were doing that maybe, you know, gave them that break and, and led to led to that. So that'll be an interesting sort of way to to add some perspective maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I in fact I think um I think the other one, and I don't know, I haven't found this album. I'll check to see if it's on on Spotify. But um, uh, Alan, or uh, not Alan White, um, Chris Squire's "Fish Out of Water." You know, I've never listened to any Squire solo stuff ever. As much as I love Chris Squire, I've yeah, never I've, listened I've, to it. Yeah, I definitely feel like um, yeah, it is on Spotify. It, it definitely, uh, I think, I want to say Parallels was like a, uh, didn't make it to Fish Out of Water and ended up being on, um, ended up going on, uh, going for the one, obviously. Really? Um, but that might be, those two records might be good listens. Um, Do we know, did, did Alan White play on Fish Out of Water? I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. I would have to, um. We'll have to we'll have to look into that because certainly, and, and I don't know, you know, at what point it happened, but you know, clearly, you know, by the time going for the one came about, Chris and Alan had become, you know, inseparable. Yeah, yeah. They they had their thing together and they were going to do their thing, you know, with whoever else was standing on stage with them at that point. So I'm just curious if, if that had, you know, already sort of been in, in effect, you know, by the time, you know, somewhere between relayer and going for the one, I'll be curious to sort of try to tease that out. That will be interesting. That will be very interesting. All right, well, we almost had a short episode. <laughs> I'm going to go to sleep listening to Gates of Delirium tonight, maybe the live version. I think that sounds appropriate. Absolutely. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going to listen to it as soon as we get off this as well. <laughs> I have a couple more things I got to do before I can turn in. But um, so is, is there anything else in terms of either Tails or Relayer that we feel that we need to sort of put on the table here tonight. You know what? A quick word about Patrick Moraz. Let's talk um, about Patrick Moraz. No, he was great. You know, he, uh, in my brief research of him, you know, when I listened, when I listened to uh, Gates of Delirium, like, he sounds like he's from the Moody Blues. And he went on to play with the Moody Blues. And I was thinking, wow, maybe he was the one, maybe he was the guy who wrote, like, some of their biggest hits but they were all written before his time there and um and you know his dismissal from yes was very unceremonious and apparently he he felt a lot of tension about it and he he was a little bit dramatic in some of his reports of it and then he was later dramatic with his departure of the moody blues 
and apparently was engaged in lawsuits. So it's interesting to me that as, you know, his persona as presented on the internet seems somewhat controversial um, mm -hmm. as a as a progressive rock jazz influenced pianist um, which I just found interesting and the other thing that I found is like many others as they circulated through the progressive rock rosters of England uh, Patrick Moraz did an album with Bill Bruford <laughs> so there you go. So um, Bill Bruford's ball of of influence is yet <laughs> bigger again. That's why it's this big, man. <laughs> you know, you know. All right. So so we've got no Bruford on these two albums, and and we're only hearkening back to him. But what he did when he left, you know, was pretty risky. So you know, let's at least acknowledge that that he. He, you know, he took his chances with King Crimson, and then later on with his uh, solo work. He, uh, he, he never achieved the same fame and audiences and album sales as he did with Yes, of course. But the guy's ballsy. I'm going to give him credit for that. I, you know, I, I think, you know, despite me bagging on him earlier. You know, I, I I don't think there's anything but love for Bill Bruford in this in this podcast. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I'm I'm buying his biography. I'm going to buy it and read it. I mean, I <laughs> I didn't always I didn't always get it, and I don't know what happened to it, but I get it now, and I love what Bill did, and and perhaps I love him even more if if the fact that he had some of that that editorial faction that that helped, you know, make those, those earlier albums what they were. Cheers. Yeah. So, so I think that will, uh, that will put a pin in, uh, in this and, you know, we'll take our little break much like the, uh, the band took their break in, in 1974, I guess it was. And, uh, we'll come back next time and we'll get into going for the one We'll duke it out over Tormato, <laughs> and I'm really, really fascinated. I, <laughs> Joe, I, I, tr I trust you'll bring your solo podcast when we when we reconvene. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> just trying. I'm just trying to give our audience a complete thing. That's all. You know, I want to make sure that we. We cover the bases. There we're we're cutting some corners in certain places anyway, but um, okay. And, and and that being said, I do think I, I'm personally curious, very personally curious to hear the discussion around drama because I think drama is going to elicit some pretty strong responses in perhaps somewhat unexpected ways. That's what I'm thinking, but. Um, like I said, I just I can't wait to hear myself. Okay, Doug. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Um, we certainly have. It's been very enlightening. 
as we go through the Yes catalog and, and looking at some of these uh, these albums in, in sort of a greater context. It's really been fun. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available on iTunes and Google Play, and I would imagine Stitcher and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Um, please, we encourage all of you to reach out with your thoughts on these two albums or any of the Yes catalog. Um, based on things we've said or thoughts of your own, whatever whatever floats your boat. Um, you can reach us on Twitter, at ProgPala. You can email us. Our email is progpala, P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. And we are also available on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All of those at Progressive Palaver. Um, we look forward to the next episode when we consider the potential yes masterpiece going for the one.